backyard homes. You've all heard of it, and some say that they are the answer to the housing crisis here in Canada. We're going to talk about that in a moment. You're watching the City DNA podcast, The People in Our Neighborhood. This is the podcast where we interview interesting people and businesses in our community right here in Guelph, Ontario, Canada. This week, it is my privilege to interview the founder of Cabin Office Company, Steve Reed. Steve, what's going on? Hey, Andrew, how are you? Good to be here. I am good. Listen, good. I know you're a busy person, so I thank you for taking the time to chat with us here. I know that a lot of people are interested in backyard homes. Some people call them tiny homes. Personally, I hate that name, tiny homes. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do so that the audience can uh, know where we're coming from in our conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And um, like I say, really good to be here, Andrew. Thanks for inviting me on. Um, you and I had a, a great chat when we first met a couple months ago. And um, I, I appreciate you coming out to our event last week at our, uh, our backyard open house. And um, I was kind of laughing to myself this morning when I was thinking about it, you know, we were fortunate enough to have a lot of people come out to that event, but unfortunately you and I didn't get to, you know, speak one-on-one uh, -on -one too much there last week. So now you've sort of uh, offered me this opportunity to uh, have a one-on-one -on -one chat live on YouTube and, and recorded uh, for, yeah. for all future generations. But uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, I know when we first met, um, we, we probably spent about an hour and a half talking about this and could have spent another, you know, easily half hour. Um, it, it was uh, really great chatting with you. So yeah, looking forward to it. Um, so yeah, I own Cabin Office. We started in 2020. And as the name suggests, we're building backyard studios. So small, 100 square foot rooms. I'm actually sitting in mine right now in my own backyard in Guelph. And uh, that came about because of the pandemic. I, I spent my career working in engineering. And, um, you know, like many people, I was sent home in March 2020, um, you know, with a laptop and, uh, uh, you know, kind of figured out sort of attitude. So I really enjoyed working from home, but I didn't have a good place to do it. Um, I was in an unfinished basement, cold basement. It, it just wasn't a good setup for work. But I did really appreciate, um, you know, being at home with the, the three young kids, um, you know, just being available to them a bit more. Um, I kind of gained an extra hour in my day, not having to commute to Cambridge. Um, yeah, I just felt like it was a good fit for me, but I didn't have the space. So the sort of idea for creating this small cabin in your backyard where you could work uh, came up sort of in that, you know, probably first month of working from home. By the second month, I'd quit my job and I was working on it full time, uh, perhaps a little prematurely, but um, I was just really excited. I, I think I'd sort of spent um, my my consulting days, you know, good at it and enjoying the work, but, it, you know, always looking for that purpose, cause or passion and found it with these sort of small backyard structures. And um, yeah, so started the business cabin office in 2020. Um, I think in the first year, you know, I was kind of doing everything. I, I had an assistant helping me build them and we did about uh, six of them in the first year. Um, hired in the second year, a uh, team of carpenters uh, were able to do probably about 10 or 12 in that second year. And by the third year, we were really rolling. We, we got a shop space here in town. We we're prefabricating these. So mostly eight by 12 or 10 by 10 structures uh, in our shop, craned onto a truck driven to, to our client's property, craned over the house. Um, so we, we'd be in and out in a single day and people really liked that. Wow. And I think there's, there's about 40 of these out there in the world now. Um, so that, that's really what got us started. And, um, but in, you know, just sort of by coincidence in that same time frame, um, the zoning was being amended to allow for backyard homes. And we got our first, um, project in 2021, um, building a, a unit uh, here in Guelph and I think in, in Guelph. Um, so we did that and then that sort of spun into uh, several more uh, projects that we built in 2022. Um, and then, you know, we sort of saw a slowdown with the smaller studios and decided just to go all in with uh, with the backyard homes. Um, so nowadays we're um, just a, you know a small team. We we have a background in construction, obviously engineering myself, uh, design, project management, and um, we do 
um, you know, we're, we're hopeful to do about uh, eight of these structures this year and um, big plans for growth. So it's, uh, it's it's an exciting time with these. You know, it, it, like you say, everyone's heard of them. Everyone's seems to be interested. And I talked to, you know, all kinds of people that are looking at different options for their own yards. And, um, it, you know, what, what I love about these structures is just the flexibility that it provides. Um, we've built for people whose parents are now living in the backyard or they've built it for, you know, a child to live in, you know, in one case, a uh, adult child with a disability, they can live on their own, but not fully independent. So to have this in the backyard, it's, it's just like a game changer for this family. So we, we see that all the time, hear these stories and it's, it's really great. It's, um, it's something that I, you know, we really believe in and, um, think, uh, could be a great solution to, um, uh, or one, you know, solution and, and one spoke and an overall wheel of solutions that, that are needed right now with what we're seeing with uh, housing affordability. Yeah, absolutely. And that's so true. And when you say that it's one part of the solution, mm -hmm. that's what people forget is that, you know, a tiny home is not the answer to the housing problem, but it's certainly part of it. Yes. And uh, we have to be cognizant of, you know, working together as, as a community and that, you know, that's one of the questions I want to ask you is when you're dealing with when municipalities out there. So I think mainly you're in Guelph, but I'm sure you've done other cities as well or about to do other cities. What is it like working with the cities being that it's new bylaws and they're not fully, I'll say, fully versed in how to apply them? You know, there's still some things. Oh, well, that didn't work, you know, or I thought that that would work, but it's just not practical. Are there things like that that you come across and how are you dealing with them? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're fortunate here in Guelph to have a mayor that is very supportive of these types of projects and housing in general. Um, it's not necessarily the case in other cities. So that that's something that we're, you know, lucky to have. Um, working with the building department, obviously, you know, we need a building permit to, to do one of these projects. Um, they're 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 good um and when I, I i sort of hesitant there because when we first started it was a very challenging process it was something that was brand new like i say we built the first permitted house that guelph uh you know had ever seen in, in that department and um it, it was challenging to get the permit approved they had a lot of questions they weren't clear about things um it was inconsistent throughout the inspection process in terms of what they needed and what they would overlook. Um, and it sort of set our expectations and it led to some difficulties in our second year because we're sort of going into our second year, we built three houses. Um, but to give you a really specific example, we didn't have an allowance for a full like centralized ventilation system. Uh, we were using sort of a newer technology um, that we, you know, the first house we built, they allowed this new technology. The second year going through, the inspector said, you can't use that. That's not allowed. Um, you need this, you know, full centralized system. So it was really challenging. And, you know, we're still dealing with uh, one of them and, you know, we're work towards a solution. But it, it's it's slow. I think a lot of everything, um, you know, with, uh, with these permits happens slowly. Um, it, it's good nowadays because we are, you know, they're familiar with these applications and we're getting them approved much quicker. We, we know, um, we, we both know what, what we need to put on paper to get a building permit nowadays and the actual construction process is going a lot smoother, still seeing some, you know, inconsistencies just in terms of what the office, you know, the building department office is willing to accept versus what a building inspector requires once it's actually under construction. So there's, there's still some risk there. Um, but we're, I think we're, we're managing it well. And, and just as you know, it, it's not such a new thing anymore. And more of these applications, um, get approved and built, um, everyone's just becoming more familiar with it, which helps. Yeah, that's a, a, seems like a pretty common problem in construction in general with any municipality. And I've experienced it with uh, radical housing as well when we're building some basement apartments mm -hmm. where the permit says one thing and an inspector might have a different opinion. And yeah, I've put my foot down and, and you know, talked about what makes sense and what the permit says. And at the end of the day, in my case, the city agreed 
the inspector agreed that, yeah, you know what, even though the permit says that, um, and I have a different opinion, you're right, that, that makes sense. You know, in, in my case, it was an egress window in a common area. Now, remember this from early on, one of our first ones that we did is the, the, the inspector that did that one said, yeah, we prefer to have the egress windows in the living room as opposed to a bedroom. And this is for homes that are greater than five years old, which is a little bit different than, than newer homes. Uh, and I said, yeah, that, yeah, that makes a little, that makes sense. But why are you wanting it in the living room? And he goes, well, here's the thing is people can lock their doors in a bedroom, but a living room, there are no doors to lock. So if you look at the idea of an egress window, which is to get out in the case of a fire, that makes a lot more sense than mm -hmm. having it in the bedroom. And, and I always remembered that. And so when we design these, we always try and put them in the living room so that everybody has that option to escape. And how can you argue with that? Mm -hmm. Right. Even though an inspector might say it has to be in the bedroom, you know, it does make sense. So I'm wondering if there's some things like that, that, you know, the permit says one thing, it makes sense. The inspector might think something different based on, you know, experience, knowledge, on, and I'm not knocking the inspector uh, because they, they're doing that job for a reason. But is there room for negotiations based on logic, based on, you know, need in the community to create affordable housing? And what I'm getting at, and I'm going to try and use your example, although I don't know the details of it, but if there is a difference between getting another place for someone to live and not, and it's simply based on the type of uh, system for heating, mm -hmm. could we just not make an exception for that heating system if it works? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It, it does make sense. Um, I, I would say generally the answer is no. Um, the building code is the building code and they will make exceptions and there is a process to apply for a sort of an alternate solution if you know something in the code doesn't seem to apply perfectly to your project um yeah what what i find andrew is that um we have a building code that in my opinion is designed for 2000 square foot custom new build houses and not so much for very small uh, you know, projects on existing properties and backyards. Um, so, you know, to give you an example of that, um, yeah, that, that centralized ventilation system, um, it, it's, we just found it in our builds. There's very little space for utilities and we've now sort of redesigned those to add more space. Um, but space is premium in a very small house and in a very large house, you can have, you know, a, 100, 200 square foot utility room in the basement and, you know, have great space for all these things. But in a very small house, because that space is so premium, there are newer products that make a lot more sense, but they just aren't approved at this stage. Um, so that approval, you know, could be coming like the technology that I spoke about. I think it's a great technology. I use it here in, in my own office. It worked great for small spaces. Uh, they're used a lot by, um, tiny homes on wheels builders. It's, it's like, and it brings in fresh air and then exhausts, um, stale air from the room. And it just sort of goes back and forth on, you know, cycles back and forth on one minute cycles and it exchanges heat from the air. So it's not permitted currently because, um, it doesn't capture enough of the heat from the air. So what I find is if it's, you know, on a day like today when it's zero degrees, I don't even notice that it's on. Um, it, it does a good job, but if it's minus 20, it might start blowing some colder air into the room, which, you know, they're, they're saying that's not acceptable. Um, so there's not a lot of wiggle room, you know, they won't overlook the fact that, Hey, this isn't listed in the code, so you can't use it. Um, yeah. So it's, yeah, it, it, it's a process. It, it's a give and take. Um, you know, that, that's a fairly technical example. I think your example, uh, it, it just makes sense, right? It, it's, it, you know, yeah, if someone needs to get into that unit to save someone's life, um, probably getting into the common room would be important rather than just, you know, sort of one bedroom. So, um, yeah, it, it's, it, it is, it can be frustrating um, when you get one thing approved on the drawings and then there's another expectation with the, uh, inspectors. And, and that I would say is the biggest challenge with permitting. Yeah. And do you think that is mainly because it's a new process or is it just something that is no matter what you build in any municipality? 
Yeah, um, it certainly doesn't help that it's a new thing. Um, I think there's there's uh, some municipalities that are easier than others. We're we're building in a smaller municipality right now, um, and I I really believe that they would have allowed one of these through wall systems. And they they seem they seem much more um, just like oh this is a really cool thing that you're doing. This is great. Um, versus mm-hmm. some inspectors we've seen um, in other you know bigger municipalities where they come in and they're they're almost looking for the the gotchas. Um, they're just sort of like walking around and like looking around and oh you know. Oh, that 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 smoke alarm is more than uh, the required distance away from the bedroom door, kind of thing, right? And it's so yeah, it's it's it, it's challenging, and, and there's a lot of frustrations with with that. Um, the only thing we can do is continue to work on more of these projects and and develop a you know continue to develop our relationship with the city. We're we're finding now that the inspectors mostly know us and they know that we're you know trying to you know sneak things past them. Like that's not the intent with with you know ever. It, it's more what is practical yeah. for a small space. Um, so yeah, it's you know I, I go back to that all the time that the building code is designed for larger buildings and it becomes difficult um, to apply. Um, take, take ejector pits. Um, that is a great tool for a small home builder in order to deal with septic because we're draining by gravity from that backyard home. But say your backyard slopes away, like down away from the house. So you're, by the time mm-hmm. your four foot deep trench gets to the house, it might be you know, so deep that it's below the level of the lateral going to the street. So we can use an ejector pit to collect that waste and then pump it up. Um, and uh, so th- that's a great, you know, tool for us to have. But unfortunately, there's a sentence in, you know, I won't get too technical here, but there's a sentence uh, in part seven of the code that says, if you can drain by gravity, you have to drain by gravity, which, you know, I, I get it. Like mm-hmm. that's, that part of the code can apply to anything from a half million square foot Amazon facility right down to our little backyard house. Um, and, you know, it is a higher risk way of, of draining using an ejector pit, the pump could fail. But to me, it, it's sort of, well, what's the risk of that pump failing? What's the time frame? You know, what are the, what, what's the probability of that failing? And then what's the result of that? Okay, so it's like, in 10 to 15 years, there's a 5% chance this pump could fail. Okay, what do we do then? Okay, hire a plumber to replace the pump. Okay, great. You know, it's like, is there really a risk there? Not really. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think practically like that, but you know, looping back to your question about is there room to bend um, on the permits? Not really. Um, they they don't often think in terms of what's the most practical of the code, and um, it, it can be challenging to uh, to just to handle through that. So what I'm getting at from listening to you, it's really the code that's the driver for certain things. Going back to to the ventilation system, mm-hmm. the code says that can't be done, so we can't have that permitted in the cities. Or is there leeway that the cities can allow certain things, even though it's not currently in the code? There is. Uh, it's it's um, it's called a um, an alternative solution. Um, so you can submit an alternative solution. Um, you, you know, you pay a fee, you fill out the form saying why, you know, what the intent of the code is and what you're trying to do and, um, you know, what your request is that, you know, we're not going to meet this part of the code, but here's why this is okay. Um, it's a process and they're not, you're not guaranteed to get a yes on it. They could just as easily say, no, you you know, you need to still meet this. So, um, but it is an avenue that, that is provided for situations where something doesn't work, um, with, with what, absolutely. So yeah. at, the, at, at this point in stage of your of your company, you've designed a building that kind of works or a plan that kind of works. You probably modify that to fit somebody's backyard. Yeah. Certain costs that are developed based on permits and what your experience is, mm-hmm. and you go build these things. But I'm yeah. certain that in the background, you're you're thinking about ways to improve that may not be in the building code or permitted by the municipalities at this point in time. Mm-hmm. and are advocating for that. Do you see a backyard home being different in five years from now than you do today based on the need and evolution of technology and things? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, you know, obviously they had to start somewhere when they started allowing these in 2020. Um, 
here in Guelph, like we're fortunate. We have, you know, like I say, a mayor that supports it. Um, they were one of the earlier ones to adopt it. Um, quite a few other municipalities um, were a couple of years later and the Bill, Bill 23 sort of um, was maybe the primary driver for allowing them. Um, so yeah, but they, you know, they had to start somewhere. Um, I think it will evolve. I think everything um, evolves based on um, what's happening uh, with with the you know in the real world with these applications. And um, yeah, I, I think you know it, there'll be further amendments. And um, uh, we you know five years from now, um, you know I would like to hope that there is sort of a code developed that's more specific to um, smaller structures, or at least um, some leeway given from, uh, you know, the, the part nine of the building code side of things, um, as well as in the zoning, uh, the local zoning. So the municipality has the ability to control um, the zoning aspect of it. So the size, um, height, um, you know, setbacks from the property lines, things like that. And then the province has the ability with the building code to sort of enforce how buildings are built. So I, I think there'll be, um, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful there'll be some, uh, some changes in both areas. Yeah, I can definitely see it evolving a little bit for sure. Yeah. And you're absolutely right that our city tends to be a little bit more um, forward thinking with that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we live in a, in a, we're very lucky to live in the city of Guelph. Um, and we have a mayor that does promote this, this kind of thing. Um, going back to the, the, the homeowner, I guess. Yeah. I get a lot of questions and of course I, I'm not in a position to answer them. So I just pass them on to you. What does it take to get one of these things going? Like, where does it begin for a homeowner? So I have a backyard. I want one of these things. What do they do next? Um, yeah, so I guess they call someone like me, um, to come out and take a look at the yard and, and see what's possible. Um, so as someone that every single day I, I look at yards and, um, sort of assess them based on the zoning. Um, so, you know, it, it's, and it's something that they could do on their own as well. Like there's good resources online. Um, so knowing what, you know, are you an R1, R2, R3, that sort of thing, it's, it's pretty well allowed in any backyard and, you know, higher density zones, they might not be allowed. Um, but most, most, uh, like our one through our four properties, um, permit these. Um, so depending on what city you're in, the, the setbacks are going to be very different. Um, here in Guelph, it's five feet and then 10 feet if you have a window. Uh, so that can be very limiting mm -hmm. in terms of the size of building. Like we're finding if you have like a, you know, 32 foot sort of like builder's lot size, uh, you're not going to be able to fit um, a unit in that backyard. Like we're kind of looking at minimum 40 foot frontages. Um, but then you go to Kitchener and it's two foot and they don't care about windows mm -hmm. or no windows. So it really does make a big difference. Um, so, yeah, I think just sort of either educating yourself on the zoning or, um, you know, getting an assessment, um, from a local builder, um, just in terms of what's possible in terms of the size that you can build that would fit on that property based on the zoning, the height that you can go, can it be one story or two stories? Um, again, here in Guelph, we're sort of limited to about 16 and a half feet, um, as the maximum height. Um, but you know, there, there are intricacies of that, you know, the height is measured to the midpoint of the roof. So you don't have to keep the overall structure under that height. It's just the sort of average height of the roof. You have to be under that level. Um, and, uh, yeah, just, you know, practicalities of construction as well. Um, you know, if you're a corner lot and we can take out a fence panel, we can get pretty well anything in your backyard. If you just have like a narrow three foot gate, like so many properties that could be really challenging to build in your backyard. Um, the water service from the street is a, is another really big one. Um, if you're like me and you have a five eighths diameter copper water line coming to your house, um, they're going to make you upgrade that, um, all the way to the street, which is a massive cost. Um, they might make you upgrade that depending on the number of fixtures you have in the existing house and what you're planning to add with the new house. So there's a lot of in intricacies. Um, power, you know, is the other big one. Um, usually we see panels like 125 amp. Um, there's going to be enough space for adding one of these homes unless you have, you know, all electric heat in your house or something like that. But usually 125 amps is sufficient. You know, 100 amps might not be. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of due diligence to understand um, 
property access to think about um, zoning requirements, what what could be permitted, and then just what's what's your budget. So understanding, um, you know, how you're going to pay for it and, and what you can afford and how much one of these projects will cost. Um, you know, I, I speak to people all the time that um, there's this, I think I call it a leftover idea uh, from, you know, 15, 20 years ago that residential construction should cost about 150 bucks a square foot. Um, <laughs> you're building in someone's backyard, very small. That number does not make any sense at all. Um, if you build really small, you still need a roof, four walls, a foundation. Um, you know, the plumbing trench coming from the house doesn't care what size the building is. Like you still need a fairly substantial uh, uh, trench back to the house for your water, sewer, electrical, those things. Um, so yeah, it's it's sort of understanding that you know it, it's not it's not going to be you know fifty thousand dollars and you have uh, you know a beautiful backyard house um, just because it's very small. Um, that dollar per square foot number uh, grows very quickly as the building gets smaller and as uh, it gets more and more difficult to build in that space, you know, dealing with existing trees and um, access to the yard and, and uh, connections to the, the plumbing and the, the main primary dwelling. Yeah, when I listen to you describe that, the actual building itself doesn't seem like it would be overly expensive to yeah. do. But it sounds like a lot of the cost is just in the preparation of the property to get it there. Like when yeah. I think digging a trench, you know, in changing your your piping to one inch, you know, mm -hmm. getting your hydro out there, all that just seems astronomically expensive. Is that the biggest factor what of of why people don't do this more, or, or do you find they're they're shocked by the price because of that? Yeah, I mean, we can talk a bit about some perspectives on like the cost of one of these, um, like going back to your point about like the trench, it's not the main component of the project, um, like the building itself is a lot more expensive than than that, but it's the spot that has the highest risk. Um, you know, anytime you're right. digging, you know, um, it's I'll put it this way. It's really easy to estimate the costs if I know like the exact specs that you want, the amount of space, the selections you've made in terms of siding and interiors and those sort of things. Like I can give you a fairly accurate price um, and it might be higher than what people are expecting just based on the, you know, that sort of leftover thought of what construction costs should be. Um, mm -hmm. But it's really hard to know what you're going to get into in terms of um, putting a foundation and connecting it back to the house um, are we going to need to upgrade to the street? Um, are we going to need a hydro upgrade? Things like that. Um, so it, it's the area that has the most fluctuation, you know, I, I, it, it's hard right. to know, is it going to be a $20,000 endeavor or is it going to be a $75,000 endeavor? Cause we have to, you know, dig up all the way to this, you know, find the, the sewer under the street and get all the permitting and engineering approvals to do that. So it's, um, it, it's the area where, um, you have the most unknown. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So it's not just a matter of craning over an office like you used to do. Yeah. It's yeah. a little bit more customized to the property and a lot more work. I it would is, say. Yeah. 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 It definitely yeah. is. Yeah. Where yeah. do you see your company going in the next uh, number of years? Is it something that you think will explode? Are you expanding your business? Uh, tell me what your thoughts are on that. Well, so our, you know, talking about um, purpose, cause your passion, like we're all in for adding more housing units. Um, you know, the flexibility um, that these things provide people in terms of multi-generational living or adding rental income or just adding more space. Maybe they love their property, but need, you know, that extra living space or spot for the parents to live or people to stay. Um, just love that. Um, so I, I just, I see us getting more efficient with building these and being able to build more of them a year. Uh, I see the market just, I mean, it's, it's growing, it's going to continue to grow. Um, I don't think this is going anywhere. I, I think just with the price of real estate nowadays, um, you know, that I was fortunate enough, you know, 
only 10 years ago to sort of work for several years out of school and then be able to buy a house. Like, I, I just don't think that is the case for everyone these days. You know, the vast majority of people are going to have a hard time getting into the real estate market. And I just, I find that these projects are a great solution to that, whether it's building on your parents' property and using your down payment to build like an actual full house um, or the parents building something like that and the kids moving into the main house. Like there's just a lot of flexibility with that. So yeah, I see us building more of these. Um, I think ultimately, uh, we would consider other, um, you know, whether it's developing properties, like building, um, you know, where you have one bungalow severing and, and putting up two houses, each with a backyard house, just, you know, I, I like gentle densification. Um, I like the idea that you could walk down a street and not know that, um, a couple new houses used to be one older house. Like I'm not an advocate for, you know, trying to go huge on a property, uh, in a neighborhood that's full of bungalows, like sort of build something that looks like what's around it, but do it a little bit smarter than we used to do it. Um, you know, I, I think gone are the days that someone can have a half acre in the city of Guelph and, you know, expect for one dwelling unit for two people to live in. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You and I talked about this before with the type of people that would want a backyard home and then, you know, how uh, Radical Housing, the company that, that I created for the same purpose, yeah. uh, which does base on apartments, is looking at, you know, you take an older person that's typically older people have been in their homes for a lot longer than our generations. In fact, uh, people in our generation move every four to five years, believe it or not. Yeah. Uh, my parents have been in their home for, you know, you know, 20 years. I know people 50, 60 years. Yeah. And when you get older, the last thing you want to do is go to an old age home. Let's mm -hmm. face it. They're not yeah. the best places in the world. The mm -hmm. place my grandmother's at in St. Catharines is, I feel, I feel bad for her, you mm -hmm. know, but that's really the only place for her at her age at 98 years old. Wow. You know, that's not the way you want to end your life. Mm -hmm. So if you could have the option of staying in your home, in your backyard that you've built and, you know, planted the trees and cut the grass for 50 years and have a beautiful one level home that suits all your needs. Mm -hmm. And then what you can do with the main house is whether it's family or not, but you can also rent that out and build a basement apartment. Yeah. So you not only have the income to support that and, and to support the cost of doing that, mm -hmm. but you also have. Uh, a number of other things that, that people don't often think of, like uh, someone to help with the maintenance of the properties, to cut the grass, to shovel the snow. Yeah. But beyond that is to have community, to have somebody just to say hi to. If you want to yes. come over for a cup of tea. And those things create not only community, but it it allows for quality of life. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes people live longer because they're in a happier environment. Yeah. And I think that those type of things get lost. So um, those are the things that, you know, I love to be able to push with people like you to mm -hmm. um, advocate for these people in terms of what are they deciding for the end of their life, old mm -hmm. age home or stay on their property and help people and help themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think, um, um, where was I going with that thought, Andrew? Um, yeah, I think our, our parents' generation are fortunate enough to now own, or a lot of them own real estate that's much more valuable. And it's, you know, they've paid it off a long time ago and, and there's a lot of value in it. So there's a lot of equity to be tapped into. And we've, we see quite a few people considering doing projects, you know, to, you know, mom selling the house and going to build something in their backyard. And, you know, just the you only need to live in that house for so many years before it would pay for itself. And what I mean by that is if you're going into assisted living and say it's five, six, seven thousand $7,000 a month, um, you know, you could put one of these in a, in a backyard for $250,000 and do the math. Like after that period of time, it's basically paid for itself. And then anything after that's a bonus. So, um, I, I really like that. And I like what you said about, um, you know, old age and, um, I'm just thinking of that show that I don't know if you've seen it, the blue zone documentary about, um, people in, um, 
Japan and Italy and all these places that are like living like well into their 90s and beyond. And it seemed like the common thread was that community. Like they spent a lot of time uh, with other people um, and uh, exercise, mostly on the side of hills, like these you know, 95 year old people like climbing a hill every morning to get to the market. It seems yeah. like really. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah. Not blessed with a lot of hills in uh, Southern Ontario, but um, yeah, it's, it's that sort of exercise and just exercising your mind and, and um, being around people is really important. Yeah, that's true. And it, it's interesting because our culture in Canada is a little bit different than others. I, I was talking to someone about this the other day that, you know, um, he, I think he was an Indian gentleman and he was saying, you know, that the culture in India is very family oriented Yeah, and that he is considering when he gets to be gets to have a family to move back to India because of that reason. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, and I couldn't disagree with him because looking at my family, although we're close, but we're not, we've always lived, you know, a hundred kilometers apart. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and certainly there are, you know, Canadians that, you know, have their, their parents, brothers and sisters all here and they, you know, have Christmas together. But I think a lot of us, if you were to look at it and I haven't seen any studies on this, I'm just making it up through my observations. Yeah. I would say that most Canadians would live in separate houses than live together. You don't mm -hmm. see a lot of Canadian people with, you know, the children in the basement, uh, parents upstairs, and maybe somebody in the backyard home. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't seem like that would, that, and I think that's something we have to overcome. Yeah. On a, on a lot of reasons, because one is cost. It's cost is forcing us to do that as interest rates rise and people are finding it hard to make ends meet. But, you know, to the point we we're just talking about, that value in family and connection and community is really huge. Mm -hmm. You know, and I get that not every family has the dynamics to allow that. Um, but if we had our wish list, that's what that's how I would design a community. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It just yeah. seems like it's such a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how do we get that? How do we get there? How do we convince people to do yeah. this? Yeah. It's sort of that rite of adulthood where people move out and move on their own. And, um, it's, it's rethinking that a little bit. And like you say, I think the economics are forcing people into that situation where it's no longer possible to have that rate of adulthood of, you know, buying your first house when you're 23 and, you know, moving off on your own. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think it's just getting hard enough to be able to afford like an apartment for yourself. Um, you know, at least certainly here in Guelph. Um, yeah, so it's a, it's a good question. Um, and I think, like I said, I think a lot of it will be driven by economics. Um, you know, we're, becoming more and more multicultural. And like you say, that in India, it's a very common thing and um, certainly other places as well to way. So I, I think, um, you know, we're going to see more and more of that. And it's probably going to um, just become more normal to, to, you know, maybe not for your whole life, but maybe, you know, in your 20s after university, you're going to um, live in a backyard house and, and, um, you know, that's going to be sort of a stepping stone or, or something like that. But yeah, I think it, I think it starts with attitudes moving on from that traditional idea of what it means to be, um, you know, to grow up and, and to be an adult and, um, just embracing. Yeah, that. absolutely. But there's like, like you say, there's so many benefits that come from it that I, I don't think people think about, um, if they were to try that multi-generational living, um, those benefits of, you know, Sunday night meals with the parents would be so much easier and, you know, not having to drive a hundred kilometers to, uh, have that cup of tea. Like there's, there's just a lot of like good benefit, um, that comes from it. So yeah, I, I, I hope, I hope we get there. And, and like I say, I think it will start to happen more and more just driven by economics in um, you know, in urban areas in Canada anyways. Yeah, that makes makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. You know, as you're speaking, I I was thinking about investors and you know, would there be a case for them to, you know, do this, take a a house and divide the property, make 
two houses in that property mm-hmm. with a backyard home with the basement apartment. So for one house, you get essentially six out of it. Yeah. Is there a case for that in your opinion? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it starts at that sort of six and up number that um, because real estate is so expensive to just, you know, buy a house and put a basement apartment in and a backyard home, like those are big investments to make to an already you know, really big investment of buying that property. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't think there's going to be rental income, even if you're, you know, say renting a basement apartment and a backyard ADU and living in the primary house. Like, I, I still just don't think with where interest rates are, that's going to make sense. But yeah, if you can, if you can subdivide that lot, sever a property into two and create six units, um, I think the math starts making sense. And I've, I've heard about people doing nine in, in, in the city. I know um, one specific property where a company has taken down that, uh, you know, there's a modest, nice two-story, well-landscaped home that they took down, some, like a very desirable area of the city. Um, and they're, you know, putting up three nice houses, each with a basement apartment, each with an ADU. And suddenly there's nine properties to rent there. And, you know, that eighteen, twenty, twenty-two thousand $22,000 of uh, monthly rental income, in, income coming in um, is going to offset the, uh, you know, the mortgage and the, the costs. So, yeah, I think somewhere in that, that, you know, six and up range, the, you know, pro forma start to make sense. Yeah. Yeah. But, and then, you know, when you develop a property, Builders are going with the smallest lot prop possible with the biggest house allowed on that, you know, mm-hmm. and it makes sense from a price per square foot. You know, the builder wants to make as much money as possible. Do you see a trend perhaps that maybe the backyard's a little bit bigger for that subdivision and each house has an ADU in it as part of the bill? And in addition to that, do you think that there might be some incentives to do that from the municipalities or province or federal yeah i mean i'd love to see incentives or something like that i I don't see every property going that way it would be cool if um you know maybe one in ten or maybe the corner properties um there was some um sort of requirement that that corner property is developed with three units instead of one um just from an access point of view and if someone's going to live in that adu Mm -hmm. just have sort of like a you know a walkway off the side street or something, um, you know, makes a lot of sense to me. Um, you, you could definitely add a lot. Um, I, I see the ADU, um, the power of the ADU mostly in the like older neighborhoods where, um, where the existing, you know, lots would allow for that. I think with the new build areas, it, you know, probably still makes a lot of sense to offer sort of different, you know, detached, semi-detached options, um, on smaller lots uh, with some, you know, allowance where, you know, every 10th, 15th property, whatever it is, is a 40 foot frontage with, you know, a little bit more like that, that could play into the, you know, different types of options. Um, like a, having a, a new build area with a mix of options between, you know, currently it's detached, semi-detached properties with some, you know, uh, higher density, you know, three-story, four-story apartment buildings like built here and there. But I think you could add to that mix and it, it would be really beneficial to to sort of add in a few um, requirements for an ADU um, in that neighborhood. Um, incentives for it, I, yeah, there'd have to be incentives. Otherwise, I don't think developers are going to do it because by adding that for one, you know, 40-foot frontage, they probably lose the ability to put one lot in every so many houses. They, they've lost that. And I don't think they're going to make it back by just having an ADU built on that property. So I don't think the developers are going to do it. I, I think it would, unless they're incentivized. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at is, is I don't think the cost is there and they yeah. have to be incentivized, but yeah. What a beautiful concept to maybe design a community specifically thinking about affordable housing that doesn't include an 18 story building. Mm-hmm. You know, I think of, um, I always forget the name of it cause I'm not from Guelph originally. I just kind of, uh, I'm, I'm here. I've been here for actually over 20 years, but the, yeah, the yeah. old properties, um, what is that one that fusion just bought the prison? Is there a special name for that? The, the um, Oh, over on York road, Long Victoria. Um, yeah. 
I'm not sure. I, I am also uh, less than 20 years in Guelph, so some of the like local names for things I'm not no really up on. But yeah. Uh, yeah, that property over there that we drive by all the time that used to have the trees. Yeah, that's a lot of land, and I know that they want to they want to do specific things with that. Mm-hmm. But it would be awesome if Fusion ends up listening to this podcast and they get an idea. I'd love to see at least a pocket in that where they try to do something where you have some detached homes that have a basement apartment and an ADU in the back and yeah. plan it in so that you've already got your trenching in. And so it doesn't cost extra money to do that. Exactly. I think, I think there's some cost savings that can be had with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it probably doesn't do you any good, except if you maybe consult with them because a builder's going to want to build it themselves, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but anything's possible. Yeah. And you know, that'd be really cool to see a specifically designed community with these types of things in mind. I think it could work. Yeah. Yeah. And most of those risks that I talked about go away if it's all new construction, right? Like it's pretty easy if you're already servicing the house to just run a, you know, water sewer to the back of the property and stub those up. And then it's, you know, access to the yard isn't a problem. Like all of those things go away if you're building it in tandem with another house. Um, I think a lot of those costs, uh, you know, become very normal costs, not, uh, you know, high risk sort of uh, uh, costs that could quickly balloon uh, because you dig up and, and find something that doesn't work for you. So, yeah, I, I do think that would be a, a really cool idea. So, yeah, yeah. Fusion, if you're listening, call us. It'd be real. This is what I'd like. This is what I would love to see is a community built. So if you can imagine this two story homes that mm-hmm. are built in some kind of brick or stone that looks older mm-hmm. uh, with an older type look, you know, like you see downtown yeah, with a, with a nice garage and modern inside a basement apartment in that, and then mm-hmm. a laneway at the back with an ADU. So the, if you can imagine the laneway has access to all the ADUs on both sides, yeah. bring back that. I know we have some areas in Guelph that are kind of like that, but they're not specifically designed to create more housing. Mm-hmm. but they are designed to look a little bit older. Yeah. I think that would be fantastic. And I think that would be a hit. Yeah. Uh, I th- you know, I, as a realtor, I talk uh, to a lot of people about homes and almost every person loves an older home. They just don't want the work with it, mm-hmm. but they love the looks. They love the yeah. ceiling heights, the, the room sizes and just the that general aesthetics with it. Mm-hmm. And, but they, you know, almost all people, you know, don't want the work. It mm-hmm. takes a special person to old, own an older home. Yeah. Uh, and there's some really nice ones in Guelph too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So if you have any say in that somehow through your travels. Okay. I, I'm imagining it in my mind and it looks pretty cool, Andrew. Uh, have you uh, visited cities that have like a lot of those neighborhoods where you have like the uh, kind of like front of the house isn't full of cars because all the cars are like in the back laneway? Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, the the difference is that the ones I've seen, there's no access from the front at all. Mm-hmm. And so what you get in the, the laneways behind are cars and garbage and crap yeah. like that. Yeah. So you can't build it like that. It has yeah. to be spread out. You have to have driveways in the front, uh, a laneway in the back. There's certain safety elements you have to consider too, especially with, you know, the way society seems to be going with, with you know, we'll say homelessness and stuff, but certainly this is part of that cure. So maybe there's not a need to worry mm-hmm. about that because it will yeah. help cure homelessness. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's something too, is that, you know, when we think about the housing uh, crisis, a lot of people don't get that it's a, a housing continuum. Mm-hmm. You know, it starts from homelessness and there's, I don't know, five or six different um, segments before you get to a rental house. And then after rental is an ownership and then there's investment properties but when you take a person from a, we'll say a subsidized house to the next level, say mm-hmm. to market rent, you're freeing up a space for someone else to move up that housing continuum Absolutely. and so forth. And that gets all the way back down to the person that's homeless. And now there are, there are issues with homeless people. They're not all the same. There's many different issues that, that, you know, such as drugs and stuff. And I'm not the expert in that by any means. So it's not like you can take a homeless person and put them in a, in a the next level of housing. There's work to be done to get them there as well. Yeah, it's complex. But that's you know, there are there, there are facilities like that. So if there's room in those facilities, then they can be helped. And there's only room in those facilities that people that are there get to the next level. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I've 
learned from watching, uh, you know, videos, talking to people, even talking to homeless people. I was out on the, uh, the streets of uh, Guelph for an entire day one time. Such a, a beautiful thing to sit on a bench and talk to homeless people and uh, just get into the life of them, like them telling me their stories, you know, why they're there. And that's one thing people don't realize is it could be you and me in that street, you know, because of X, Y, or Z. Yeah. You know, they're not there because they're, you know, low life people. Uh, sometimes yeah. people get stuck there because of, you know, things that they end up doing to cope with life, but they're beautiful people. Yeah. 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 And um, if we can just help them move up and along, uh, that's the name of the game, name of the game. But if there's no place for them to go, we're not going to be able to help them at all. It doesn't matter you know, how many, you know, charity events we have or things like that. It's, it's working at all levels of the housing continuum. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying all that just to say that society forgets that creating a basement apartment or an ADU is part of the solution. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, one thing I have a question for you and just your opinion, I guess, is when it comes to financing of these things, you know, there are, are a lot of ways to do it. How do you find people are financing your builds being a little bit more expensive than say a basement apartment? Yeah. Yeah. Where, so I, I would kind of generally categorize it as, um, you know, home equity line of credit would be one sort of general category. Um, you know, a refinance of, of their property, someone that, uh, doesn't owe much on their home and they can refinance the mortgage. Um, you know, is, is definitely an area, um, and, and sale of property, like, you know, the grandmother selling a house and investing that in, um, the daughter's property, uh, to be closer to the grandkids, like those sort of types of properties. Those are the main ones that I see. Um, yeah. And if I can, if I can turn the interview a little bit around on you, I was curious to ask, um, you know, your perspective with that. I know last time we were, we were talking, um, you were talking a bit about, um, just using, you know, RRSPs and how you could sort of, uh, invest that into a second mortgage. Um, and, and that's something that is really cool. Uh, I hadn't heard of it before. I've talked to other people since, and they weren't really familiar with it. So I, I think it'd be kind of valuable to, um, you know, both for me and people listening to this, uh, to, to hear a little bit about, you know, what, what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah, so we've we've done that a little bit with with the uh, basement apartment thing, mm -hmm. you know. So we, you know, in our basement apartments, we look for a solution to help people to be able to afford it. And one of the ways that we've been able to do that is through uh, self directed RRSPs. So we yeah. find that many people, I would say, between the age of forty and sixty, have a substantial amount of money in their RRSPs if they've been contributing, you know, since they were young. Most people have their RSP sitting in a mutual fund that's gaining, you know, between we'll say seven and 10% if you're lucky. And, you know, you just never know if it's going to go up or down. There's just, mm -hmm. it really, it's just a piece of paper that can change, you know, in, in a, in a second based on what the economy is doing. Mm -hmm. And so what we're finding is that there is a, is a group of people out there, just regular people like you and me that would love to have an alternative way of investing their money but help their own local community. Mm -hmm. And so the way that you can do that is by using your RRSP. So it, it's still a registered fund, but you make it a self-directed uh, fund through a company called um, uh, Olympia Trust. And there's another one as well. Uh, I forget the acronyms for that. I think it's like CWT or something like that. Uh, but Olympia Trust is the one that I'm most familiar with. So they act as a third-party trustee for this. So yeah. You know, in, in, I'll just use my personal example. I had money sitting in an RRSP. I chose to move that from the company it was with to uh, Olympia Trust. So they hold that money in trust. And then we are able to use that money for, an, for a second mortgage on a property. Okay. And so that's, in my case, I did most of the work myself. You need a lawyer to do the transaction just like you would on any second mortgage. And if it's under $50,000, then you only need one lawyer to do both sides. If it's greater, then you need a lawyer on both sides. Okay. So there is a cost for that, the lawyer fees on both sides. If you're not comfortable doing it 
by yourself and there's Olympia Trust provides uh, a concierge service to help you. And there's instructions that they give you as well. But some people aren't comfortable when it comes to, you know, moving their money and setting things up and, you know, finding the, you know, the, um, uh, I don't know what an example is, the, the deed for their property, whatever it is that, that they need or the survey for the property is one thing that they ask for. Mm -hmm. uh, an appraisal is often required as well. Mm -hmm. But the beauty of this is that you control it. So you can set the interest rate that you want. Mm -hmm. So if you are doing it out of the goodness of your heart, you can do it for the minimal amount, which is prime rate. Uh, so right, right now that's 7.2. When it was lower, you can do it, we'll say at 3% if you wanted to. Yeah. And you can go all the way up to, I think, 30% interest. Um, that doesn't interest me, no pun intended. Uh, because our mission is to create affordable housing. So if yeah. you have, you know, a, a really high burden of interest, it's not really helping. So, but that is possible. And I find that a lot of people like to set that interest rate at around 10%. So they're making a little bit more money than they would in mutual funds. It's backed by real estate in itself. So that if something happens, you have an asset in return. Um, you would have to, you know, foreclose and stuff, which is a shame, but your in your your investment is protected so it it sounds like a complicated process but i found it extremely easy to do and in fact one of our projects that we're doing right now is funded that way one of my colleagues in the real estate world um has volunteered to use their rsps for this specific project uh which is a blessing in fact that person is the one that got me onto the uh, self-directed RSP. So I have a lot to thank uh, that person for. I'm not yeah. mentioning their name because they, they haven't given me permission to say that. So um, if if they want me to give their name, then I'll put it in the comments below. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, can, you can go. Does that make sense? Or do you have any more questions about that specifically? Um, yeah. So like, I mean, I was talking to someone last week, at, actually at the, uh, the open house event that we did. Um, and they were just sort of, they were like, okay, well, that sounds fine. But like, say you invested your money into my property, like, what's the protection? You know, what if I just decided, you know, I'm not going to pay or, you know, I sell that property and you don't even know about it. Uh, you know, so just sort of um, curious about that side of things, like in terms of, you know, security on that. Well, this is a, either a first or second mortgage, depending on the circumstance. Okay. So it's it's tied to the property. So if, it, if the property yeah. gets sold then you get the money you get paid yeah, out you get, just like yeah. a regular first mortgage would okay. uh if the property if they stop paying then you know you have the the right to foreclose on the property uh things like that mm -hmm. okay and, and those details of how to actually do that that's not my expertise i just you know know that this is the process that would you that have available risky? to you yeah yeah i got got it yeah and, and like so would that seem risky to someone say they were um Okay, they own a house, like new build area. They've got like an unfinished basement, right? I'm going to finish this basement, create, you know, an additional dwelling um, in the basement and rent it. Um, and they, they do a deal like this. Someone invests, say even like a parent invests like RSP money, directs it to a mortgage so that they can fit out that basement for rent. Um, and they're going to get a certain amount per month from that renter. And of that, they're going to, like, they're paying back that um, that mortgage uh, along with interest, correct? Okay. R right. So if you look at it from a practical perspective, and we'll just use a basement apartment as, yeah. as an example here. You know, you've invested, you know, X amount of money into it. You have, we'll just use 50000 as a, as an example uh, of a second mortgage. There's a payment of, you know, $400 a month. And and by the way, you can shape that how you want. You yeah. can have it as a interest only, or you can have a principal and interest. You can set the amortization rate to whatever you want. So you can be flexible with the payment terms. Yeah. The one that we did is interest only. So the payment for the homeowner is only $300 a month for okay. that one. Yeah. And so rent comes in say they, you know, 2000 bucks and say that your overall burden is 2000 bucks a month and they yeah. stop paying. Well, that's not the ideal situation, right? So the first thing you would want to do is deal with them as a tenant. 
and get them evicted because they're not paying rent, which today is a bit of a problem because they are backlogged. It takes, you know, up to six months or so to get into the, the uh, housing tribunal. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you end up in a position where you aren't able to pay that second mortgage back, then mm-hmm. the, 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 se- the person that did the mortgage can foreclose on the property. They can mm-hmm. take it over and sell it. Yes. So that's, that's the risk of that. Yeah. Now in our situation, we, you know, that's, I mean, that's the, the risk of any investment. If you're dealing with real estate, you go buy a rental property, you're risking that that person is not going to pay rent. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's a normal risk that's assumed, mm-hmm. but for a person that's, you know, first of all, if you're adverse to that and it's like a, a make or break and it's going to cause detriment to yourself, um, anxiety, things like that. I don't think that this is the, the yeah, process sure. or the path that you want to take. Mm-hmm. Um, some people are driven here by necessity. So you, you might want to take a little bit more risk than you're accustomed to. Um, but there are things in place too, that you can do. For example, with, with rent, there are programs out there that, uh, you can have, it's like an insurance program where if the renter stops paying, you have rent paid for up to a year, oh, okay. which is the pro the time that it takes to get, you know, everything taken care of from the tribunal. Yes. They'll pay for, um, the, uh, the person I'm sorry, my, my brain is not thinking at, at, at this, or oh, the paralegal, I don't know why I couldn't think of that, mm-hmm. uh, to, to handle the case at the tribunal, they will, uh, give you up to $10,000 worth of damages to, to cover if there's any damages, things like that. Mm-hmm. And that comes at a cost. I think it's maybe 8% of the, of the lease cost, okay. which is a significant amount. And it, you know, it's like anything insurance. Why do I pay this if nothing happens? But if something happens, you're glad you paid it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. That's really, so if you have, if yeah, so it's a good solution for somebody that's in a situation where they, you know, don't have that risk tolerance, but they need to have the extra income coming in. Mm -hmm. They essentially, they can take less income, you know, pay their bills, whatever the situation may be, but they have this, this component that's an insurance product that will protect them. Yeah. So 8%, say 10%, if you're renting that for, $2,000 $2,000 a month, it could be a couple hundred dollars. And then maybe the interest yeah. on that loan, uh, to the investor, say, you know, the $300 you mentioned. Um, so that, I mean, there's still three quarters of that rental money coming in is income for, um, the person who does the project, like the homeowner. Um, and, and then knowing that I'm not trying to uh, sell insurance for anyone, but, uh, you know, knowing that, um, it's insured. And if you did get into a situation where someone wasn't paying, um, that, you know, you could still, you know, have that income and, and not have to worry about, you know, the lender foreclosing on you because you can't make the $300 a month payments. Um, and in that case, it, it's just sort of, you know, $300 a month isn't so much that you're probably going to lose your property. Um, if you had to sort of pay that out of pocket to the investor for several months while you, um, dealt with that, that, uh, rental situation. Yeah, exactly. I think it's a win-win situation. And like I said, I think there's many people out there that uh, would love to invest in something that is local that would help human beings out. Yeah. Uh, And again, you know, going back to the housing continuum, just getting people moved along, like, Mm-hmm. You know, get rid of that, um, that, that roadblock or that, um, dam that, that we'll say, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that reminds me too, is it is, and I don't know anything about this. So if someone out there is watching this and has, has a clue about this, an easy solution is to have a group of people that, you know, don't have to be accredited investors that can put their money into a pool of funds that will go to building an ADU or a basement apartment, anything that creates another place for somebody to live. Yeah. And they get their, you know, eight to 10% return on investment. I think there's a lot of people that have, you know, $5,000 extra that would rather put it there than they would in the stock market. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. So if you're out there, yeah, please make that happen. Tell us how to do it in a, in a, in a legal way. That's cheap. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to set up. Yeah, it makes so much sense. Um, yeah, thanks for uh, for talking about that. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, Steve, I love our talks. Um, I could talk with you 
all day long about stuff. I have, I have a ton of questions. Yeah. Um, what is something that you would want to share to the audience as we start wrapping this down? Hmm. Um, yeah, it's, um, I think, um, you know, just reflecting on our conversation a bit and, and, um, you know, I really think that, um, point about multi-generational living and just kind of rethinking, um, how we do real estate a little bit, just, uh, you know, as, as we're forced by the powers of economics to re to rethink some of those, um, parts of, uh, of how, you know, that right of adulthood and that, um, I, I think I just want to share that there are options that, that exist that, you know, if, if you are fortunate enough to have a property, whether it's, you know, in a basement or in a backyard, there, there are flexibilities that exist that you might not know about. And if I can, um, you know, help you sort of realize that, you know, possibility or that flexibility, um, that's there. Um, you know, that's, I, I've, I've done a good job, you know, <laughs> the business has been successful anytime that we can sort of share that, even if, you know, there, we don't, you know, do anything together, just sort of like opening that door maybe to just different possibilities that, that exist that people might not know about, um, is, is really valuable to me and um, really fits with, you know, what we're trying to do at Cabin Office and in terms of just building more flexible um, housing solutions. So, yeah, um, yeah, love talking uh, with you as well and, and just sort of, you know, sharing what I, because I, you know, I talk to people every day, you talk to people every day, and um, it, it is, it, it's fun looking at different properties and sort of like thinking about the different possibilities and, um, you know, it, it's something that, that I do regularly just with, you know, new prospects that come in and, you know, at, at no cost, like, because it, it's, it's worthwhile to us just to have as many of those conversations as possible, um, you know, with people that are thinking about doing something on their property. So, uh, yeah, just it's valuable to me is having this conversation with you and, and putting it out there into the world um, so that people can uh, kind of get a better idea of what might be possible for their properties. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks again for your time. For yeah. those people that are listening as opposed to watching, where can they reach you? Uh, yeah. So our website is uh, cabinoffice.ca. Um, we have a web form there. Um, and our contact details are there as well if you want to email or uh, reach out by phone. Um, so cabinoffice, all one word, dot ca. Um, and our, our web form feeds directly into our, um, our project management system. So we're always, you know, uh, reaching out there, connecting with new people that come via our web form. Um, you can call me, you can email me. Um, all, all the details are on the website. Um, our uh, social media uh, you can find us, you know, of course, on Instagram, Facebook, and uh, LinkedIn. And uh, you can connect with us there as well. Um, Perfect. If you're watching through YouTube, we'll put that all down in the bottom okay. for you. But I just wanted to make sure that the people listening to this got that as well. Yeah. yeah. Awesome, Steve. Thanks for, uh, thanks for being on the podcast with us. Uh, wealth of knowledge. I learned a little bit more. I mean, every time I talk to you, I learn more. Uh, so thanks again, and hopefully we can do this again in the future and see where you're at with uh, with everything and see if we have some of these issues dealt with by then. Yeah, I, I hope so. Yeah, sounds, sounds great, Andrew. And uh, yeah, thanks again so much for having me on it. This, this was fun. My pleasure. Okay, take care.